0: My favorite Israeli radio station is Arutz Sheva, Israel National Radio.
1: Hi, I'm Anna from British Columbia, Canada, and I love Israel National Radio.
0: Shalom, everyone. This is Leah Ornish from Dallas, Texas. I am so excited to be here in the studios of Arutz Sheva, which I listen to back in Dallas every time I can on the Internet. It's just wonderful to be here in Eretz Yisrael. Everyone, tune in to IsraelNationalRadio.com.
2: Hello and welcome to all of you lovers of Hashem, His Torah, Israel, and the Noahide Nations. Folks, we're so glad that you decided to stop by, and when I say we, I literally do mean we. I have an old friend of mine, former co-host, who is back with us on the Noahide Nation show. And I'm going to go ahead and bring him in right now for him to say hello to you folks. And I'm sure you'll all remember fondly... Adam Penrod. Adam, how you doing, buddy?
0: I'm doing great. Hello to you folks, as that's what I was instructed to say by Ray. <laughs> and uh, looking forward to uh, doing some shows with you again.
2: Very good. You're doing well so far. <laughs> and we do have an interesting show. Adam and I were kind of talking about it before we really got launched into the show. And we're going to be talking a little bit, in fact, going to be talking a lot about what is an What is an oahide? I mean, Noahide Nations is now freshly back on the air. We've done a couple shows and thought it might be time to go ahead and review things that we may have touched on a long, long time ago. I mean, we've done uh, almost 100 shows. We're going to have to have an anniversary party here on our 100th show. I think it's coming up pretty quick here. Uh, So that's a good thing. But we're going to be talking about what is a Noahide.
0: You know, the interesting thing about this topic is that um, starting this whole movement, we've gone from extreme clarity on this question, what is a Noahide, to a certain amount of people not entirely sure. It seems like the, the term Noahide and even, uh, you know, what is this category within the Jewish people, what is it talking about? And um, and hopefully we can kind of move it back to a direction of being clear once again.
2: All right Where I come from, we call that fog. We're all in a fog because it does seem very confusing at times. And in reality, it's really not. But I think that's probably the good news of all of of this, is that it has become confusing. And it's only because a lot more people are looking at it more seriously and trying to get a better handle on it than what it was a while back, where you could just make a a generic speculation, so to speak, as to what it was definitively and uh, without really having to worry about being challenged. Well, now that we've been around for a while, I should say have been back for a while, uh, it's very easy to challenge certain things. But we're going to get down to the uh, details Uh, As we see them, and uh, Adam's going to help us through that. Uh, We're going to discuss, uh, I believe you were talking about using the ROM bomb because he seems to uh, cover the the area pretty, pretty well. So, uh, and just as a reminder, uh, we do want you to send your emails in to us. Uh, send them to both Adam and I at Noahide at com, And uh, the second half of our show, uh, we're bringing back uh, an old friend, uh, Doug Taylor, who is going to be giving us a teaching. And quite honestly, I haven't had a chance to find out what he's speaking on, what he's going to be teaching on, so it'll be a surprise for all of us.
0: Well, but Doug's such a great teacher that... Uh you know you can always be sure whatever it is it's good it's interesting it's relevant
2: it's always good boy he's got a great voice too i mean he just comes across like he should be on here every day but anyway so let's go ahead and and talk about what is a noahide and i think probably the best place to start and you tell me if this is you know what we what we can do adam to start with is what is a noahide in in israel and then we'll work our way out from that being the center, on out to the nations. Does
0: that work for you? Sure. So uh, I assume that when you say what is a Noahide within Israel, uh, you're you're discussing uh, within the, the textual tradition of Israel, kind of the the way Israel has has seen it. And then how does that play into the the practical reality of? talking about Noahide.
2: That and also specifically what is a, what would a Noahide living in Israel be categorized as? Because uh, there is a certain definition there is, yes. for that type of individual so we definitely want to make some uh, offer some clarity on that.
0: Let me give a, a just a, a broad sweeping statement and that is is that uh, when you talk about a Noahide, you know, a Ben Noah, anyone who's a descendant of Noah is in that sense a Noahide. So in point of fact, saying that someone is a Noahide is the same thing as saying someone is a human being. Right. <laughs> and you can talk about Israel are Noahides in one sense, and the nations, of course, are Noahides.
2: Which means basically children of Noah. Correct. And everyone, obviously, is a, a child of Noah. That's where we all came from. And, of course, exactly. Noah came from Adam, if you want to get down to the nitty-gritty.
0: Absolutely. And we all came from God, so we're all the children of God. Right. So... Uh, another layer on to it. So we have this this uh, this concept. So the the idea of Noahide comes in really to make a distinction that became necessary at Mount Sinai. When God chose a priestly nation out, he had the, the children of Israel, and then we had everybody else. So getting back to the the very first thing you want me to talk about, what is a Noahide within the context of Israel? That's called a Gertoshav. A Gertoshav is someone who has... The right to settle into the land of Israel A Gentile who has the right to settle Into the land of Israel You know this is uh, something that was uh, Offered to the Canaanites Before Joshua and the children of Israel Invaded the land They were offered the opportunity to stay in the land Live according to the seven Noahide laws And uh, live peacefully with with The children of Israel uh, Ger Toshav status is something that Exists uh, only when there's a jubilee A jubilee has to be Observed by the children of Israel in the land of Israel, a Sanhedrin has to exist That because a, a jubilee is established by the Sanhedrin. Uh, so this is a technical term, but you could have something like it, and there are rumors of rabbis working today to, to bring back something like this Ger-Toshav status so that uh, perhaps, you know, three, four years from now, there might be something where people can actually, uh, if you're a Gentile and agree to observe the Seven Noah law Laws, maybe you can go and settle into the land of Israel. Uh,
2: now, remind us, Adam, how many years is it between Jubilee years? It's, it's, it's every 50 years,
0: right? It's the 50th year. It's 49 years. It's uh, Every seventh year is the Shemitah year, and right. there's seven of those. So seven times seven is 49, and so that 50th year it becomes the Jubilee year.
2: So I've always wondered, when this happens, will the Jubilee year be the year of this all you know, manifesting, rising to the surface and being a reality? Or is it going to be from that reality 50 years later, that Geertesau status will be recognized? Or is it when, literally, there's a Sanhedrin, and Sanhedrin recognizes, or I should say, re-implements the Jubilee year, and then the Geertesau status will become a reality?
0: Well, ultimately, that'll be something that'll be decided by a Sanhedrin. But we can speculate, and what we can say is perhaps... Uh, there could be something like when Israel agrees to, to start observing the Shemitah year and they start counting the Shemitah years, then perhaps it might be something where the rabbis can say, you know what, we are observing the Jubilee years in the sense that we're counting the, the seven-year period of time having a Shemitah year. And from from that point, they could start recognizing Gertushev status. Um, like I said, you could also have a workable Gertushev status right now that doesn't have the exact... A meaning as it has in the Rambam or in the in the in the Talmud and the sources, but it's something that we can use in the modern world to kind of get by until we have an official uh, jubilee and official uh, bringing back of this status.
2: Right, and there seems to be there's actually a lot of that that's going on, uh, contributing to the confusion. Mm-hmm. Is that we're not at that point yet, where the absolute clarity will come when the uh, with with the hmm anointing. Mm-hmm. That's when everything will be. Well, this is what it is. It's, uh, in many cases, because the the Jewish people have been so involved in uh, preserving the Torah and teaching the Torah and studying the Torah, to their credit, they will have already nailed a bunch of this. Mm-hmm. And then the Mashiach will more or less take this diamond in the rough and cut it and polish it so it is just pristine. And that'll be a fun yeah. time. And may it happen in in our time.
0: Amen. And, the, and the, the the Messiah is not just for Israel, it's for everybody, because uh, part of the Messiah's job is um, bringing the Jewish people back to Torah, but it's also to bring the nations back to Torah. So that's a very fundamental part of the Mashiach's job. And you know, when we say bringing them back to Torah, we don't mean, mean believing in Torah. We mean doing Torah, and that's what part of his job is going to be, doing Torah, uh, getting everybody to do Torah properly. Uh, how that works out, we look at... Uh, Rabbi Richmond, the Temple Institute. Uh, there's debate: is the is the Messiah going to going to build the temple, or is the temple going to fall out of heaven? Or are we going to build the temple? Well, the notion is is that we sort we have an obligation. The Jewish people have an obligation in every generation to build the temple, whether they're in the land or not. So they should be working towards building the temple. So I think we could say that we all have an obligation to, to work towards getting everybody to uh, observe the laws, the Torah laws that they're able to observe now so you don't in some ways you don't really require the messiah to to get things started maybe the messiah will come along and and where we're where we're at you know take it from there uh even in a broader sense or or like you said take a a diamond in the rough and polish it off but it doesn't relieve us of of our obligation to do our part
2: no we can't we cannot be dependent upon the mashiach to do this And, and in fact many rabbis teach Uh, and many sages taught that there's two there's two ways that the mashiach can come into the world for the anointing to actually occur one way is for us to be worthy of it and the only way to be worthy of it you are just describing right now it's not just believing in torah it's actually doing torah following through on it as the children of israel said at mount sinai we will do and we will hear and that's what has to be occurring. So that's one way, that, that we could bring it about ourselves. The other way would be by force, where we are so unworthy of it mm-hmm. that it. we now come to the time that Hashem has designated that the Meshach will be anointed because the world is in such bad shape. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes that's what you hear, you know, all the, the, the chaos and warring and everything that's going to be going on, which could be... Avoided if we chose to do so. Now, what is a a Noahide? How do we fit into all of this? Uh, You've really touched on it uh, quite well, Adam, is the Jewish people are to provide us with wisdom. They're to provide everybody wisdom on the Torah. What is the Torah? What does the Torah mean to us? What does it represent to, to mankind as a whole? Well, and I've said this before, and I know I've probably said it to you a million times, so here's a million and one, is that if you were to count up every Jew alive today every man woman and child orthodox conservative i, I mean I, I don't care if you add up all the jews there's not enough to be this light into the nations as it were I, I mean there just isn't enough because you're talking about such a small percentage of the world population that it's going to take the help of the Nohi, those gentiles who are striving towards the being righteous to bring our own people back to torah so, we play an intricate role in all of this, and to deny that is to, in my estimation, deny the torah because and also to just deny rational facts because mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> there's no way that every Jew is going to be able to get to every remaining non jew on the planet it It would be humanly impossible right, and I say humanly with a qualifier that I'm not trying to take Hashem out of the equation because, you know, miracles can't happen, but we're not supposed to count on miracles, and it's my belief that Hashem wants us to participate in this. Otherwise, why bother?
0: But not only are we not supposed to rely on miracles, there's also Hashem has self-limited his interference in the lives of human beings because he's given us free will, and he feels that it's very... uh, It's very important for us to uh, uh, use free will. And so this actually has a a, uh, practical uh, consideration in regard to miracles, like you mentioned. So we're all familiar with the story of Joseph being thrown into the pit. Right. And it tells us in the Torah that Reuben did it to save his life. Well, Ray, what was in the pit that Joseph was thrown into? A lot of dirt. What else? (laughs) What else? Not just dirt. There were scorpions and snakes. Right. Well, yeah. thanks a lot, all, Ruben. Thanks all, for the help. You all know. my wife's
2: favorite things.
0: <laughs> right. You know, thanks for the help, Ruben. We really, you know, I'm sure this is what Joseph thinks. Well, <clears throat> it turns out that the reason it was saving his life is, is because when it comes to overcoming free will, it's something that uh, Hashem is not something he's willing to do easily at all. He, he's given that to us as a precious gift so that we can draw closer to him. And when it comes to a person, even a righteous person, whose life is in danger, Hashem isn't just going to step in. And so what Reuben did is he realized that it would take more merit, possibly than Joseph had, or possibly that anybody could have, to interfere with the the brothers if they actually wanted to kill him. But when it comes to overcoming snakes and scorpions and whatever else was in there, no problem. For a tzaddik, for a righteous person like Joseph, right, God has no problem performing a miracle. When it comes to human beings, though, it's not a matter of, of God interfering necessarily. It's a matter of us going out and talking to people and showing them, you know, you have this free will, but you know, you're know, you meant to use the free will correctly. Let me show you how to use it correctly. That's what everybody should be engaged in.
2: Right. Hashem won't interfere. We're supposed to provide the interference. <laughs> so yeah, there you to, go. Supposed to, to to get in front of people, especially when Hashem gives us the opportunity to... Uh, speak with them when he brings them to us mm-hmm. which can happen uh, in fact it happens regularly and it only becomes apparent when you're actually looking for it right? And, and have something to say on behalf of Hashem but then he's more than willing to bring people to you but still it takes our freedom of will, our choice whether or not we talk to that person or not now we've kind of touched on the Ger to solve, which is a, a, a status gained in Israel And an only Israel. Now, the ger would also be considered the resident alien, correct? Correct. And this, of course, does not exist today. So I'm curious, as far as Gentiles currently today living in Israel, what are they called? Just non-Jews who live in Israel?
0: Well, there's actually a great desire to um, take the Gentiles who are living in Israel to get today and and, and, and actually uh, getting them to become observant of the Noahide Laws. Okay,
2: so let's assume for a moment that they are observant, right? But we're not, we don't have the jubilee established yet, right? What would they be considered other than Noahides, or would they not be considered anything other than Noahides?
0: They, they would be considered Noahides, but I think they would have. Uh, there's an implied difference, even though it's slight. It's not quite Ger Toshav, but it's a little bit more than Noahide because there's this idea that maybe there there's a little bit more that's implied for them. Uh, to do So it's like uh, Gertrusha of Light, if you will.
2: Right, okay. <laughs> so, okay, well, that gets us into Israel. And one day we will all be uh, having to make an appearance there. It, and, and I, you know, I can't wait, actually. Uh, hopefully the temple will be built in, in my time and we'll be able to do Sukkot over at the temple. How cool would that be? That would be fantastic. Um, So now, let's take a a step out of that. That means we must have two other categories of Noahide that remain that would be outside of of Israel, presumably.
0: Yeah, and, well, interestingly enough, a gertoshav status actually can be enforced whether they live in Israel or not in Israel. You could actually have the gertoshav status and not live within the land of Israel. It means you have the right to live in Israel. So by right, of course, we're, talking, we're saying that uh, that they're allowed to settle in, in the land or not if, if they want to. So the Robom says that in his Laws of Kings and their Wars. But getting back to the, the point, a person outside the land, a, a general Ben-Noach, who has uh, accepted upon themselves to keep the Noahide laws, it, it, you could really just call them an observant Noahide. There's someone who's observant of keeping the Noahide laws. That means they they keep the laws uh, as a result of um, them being given again at Mount Sinai into the hand of Moses, which means that the person recognizes the oral tradition of Israel, uh, that being the source of the Noahide laws. So that becomes really a general category of someone who's just observant of the Noahide laws. So that's going to apply in Israel, outside of Israel.
2: Well, and I think that's part of some of the confusion where in in essence we use the word noahide to identify somebody who is keeping the seven noahide laws not just believing but actually doing the seven laws however you could actually say that a B'nai noah a, 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 anyone who's a child of, uh, of Noah should be keeping the seven laws, but you could also call them a Noahide. And that's where some of the confusion is. And, you know, people don't really know what to call us. So I think really in contemporary times, the word Noahide kind of represents those individuals who are, who are doing the Noahide laws, who yes. are keeping them. And a B'nai Noah is more of a generic statement of mankind, almost like Adam. Yeah, would you, be mad
0: you could say something like uh a noahide is a tor observant gentile and that judaism is one religion if you want to say religion if you don't want to say religion say something else uh one religion for everybody and in it you have people who are tor observant and some of them are jews and some of them are gentiles and they have different uh aspects of tor they're observing
2: right and you know there's a lot of different individuals that are in on this I mean, you have men, you have women, you have children, you have Jew, you have non-Jew. And, you know, a lot of times when I, when I talk to uh, uh, other Noahides, they always one of the things they, they like to ask is, well, why can't we keep this, the whole 630? Why can't we keep all 10? I mean, are we like second-class citizens? And no, that's not, no, that is not the answer. The answer is, is that there's many categories of people. Not everyone is a Cohen Kadol. And then a Kohen Kadol has more mitzvahs to do than a regular Jewish man. Why? Because they are the Kohen Kadol. Same with uh, the priests. There's certain things that, that are required of certain people within this, we'll say, religion of Judaism or a lifestyle, whichever you prefer. So it's really not a second-class citizen, because then every Jew out there could say, oh, I think I should be a Kongadol. What am I, a second-class citizen? I mean, everyone could say that, and it's simply not the case. Torah is Torah for mankind. You just need to find where you are in it, right?
0: Absolutely. And, And so
2: for Noahides, that's probably the biggest thing. And also the Rambam, who we all love so dearly, tells us we can keep all of the mitzvot, so long as we follow them precisely. Which, of course, that's when we need the real wisdom and teachings of the rabbis.
0: Yeah, and the rabbis will t- tell us what, what limitations there might be and what to consider. But, no, for the most part, just about anything that a, a noad wants to do, they, they, can, they can keep additional mitzvot. But, you know, sometimes, Ray, right, this is really what you need to focus on. Do you want to keep all the mitzvot? Do you want to? You need to be careful about what, what additional things you take on. Maybe we could do a show on that. Uh, you know the
2: Kind of be careful what you ask for
0: The intelligent way of approaching extra vote. Maybe we'll do a show on that Because I think a lot of people need some help with that Okay, well listen
2: Adam it, It's so good to have you back I mean we this uh, uh, first half of the show Just went by so quick I, I can't even believe it's over But we are bumping up against the bottom of the hour And we're going to need to scoot here uh, Fairly quickly And obviously we didn't get through Everything we wanted to on What's a Noahide So we'll pick up this discussion again next week. And I just want to thank everyone for being here with us. And as a reminder, once again, send us your your comments and and emails to uh, noahide at israelnationalradio.com. And next we have Mr. Doug Taylor, who's going to do a teaching that's going to be interesting for all of us and new for all of us because I don't even know what it is. So I'm going to let Doug go ahead and introduce it to us. So, Adam, we will see you next week. And in fact, folks, we'll see you on the other side of this break. Sounds great. My name is Roy, I come from Northern Ireland, I'm, I was a surgeon, and I retired, and I love Israel, and I'm in Bethel at the moment, and I listen to Israel National Radio. Hello, I'm Katie, I'm originally from Glasgow, I live in England, I love Israel, always have done, want to support the Jews, and I listen to Israel National
0: Radio. You are listen to Israel National Radio.com.
2: Pay heed. The Lord, the Lord has given unto you
0: these 15, 10, 10 commandments for all to obey. IsraelNationalRadio.com. We're your connection to Israel. Got audio? Got Israel? Got Aliyah? Got pride? Israel National Radio. We got it all.
1: Greetings and welcome to the Noahide Nation's radio show. My name is Doug Taylor and I'll be your host for this segment of the program. Today I'd like to focus on the book of Proverbs and share with you some of the insights that I've learned from my teacher, Rabbi Morton Moskowitz. Let's take a look at Proverbs chapter 10, verse 2. The verse reads, The treasures of the wicked will not benefit him, meaning the wicked, but charity saves from death. The treasures of the wicked will not benefit him, but charity saves from death. Now, the first thing that we have to ask ourselves in looking at a verse is, what are the questions? In other words, what needs defining? What isn't clear? What don't we understand? What seems strange? What doesn't make sense? We wanna ask every question that we can think of around the verse before we try to jump to answers or solutions, because the questions can guide our investigation and open up all kinds of areas of learning for us. In many education systems, we're taught to just go for the answer without first asking what all the questions are. So before we try to understand what King Solomon is telling us in this verse, let's get some questions down on the table. First, what are the treasures of the wicked? What does that phrase mean? And why don't the treasures of the wicked benefit him? I mean, you might think that treasure would benefit whoever has it. Yet the verse is saying that the treasures of the wicked won't benefit him. And why is that? And then in the second half, how does charity save from death? And moreover, Why did King Solomon connect these two ideas? What does one half of the verse have to do with the other half? Do you see how the questions open up some interesting avenues of exploration? We're essentially dissecting the verse to make sure that we're seeing all the details that we need to define or explain. So now, let's see what we can do with that. Treasures of wickedness refers to the monetary and material gain that one gets through wicked or evil activities. Things like acting unjustly, using false weights, swindling, theft, that kind of thing. Now, why don't they benefit him? Well, when you're wicked, it's pretty tough to be a wicked person and not have the word get out that you're a thief or a swindler or violently dangerous. So suppose a wicked person is in trouble and needs help. Something has happened in his life and he needs a hand. Who is going to step up to help him? I mean, he's going to have alienated himself from the people around him and the community because of his evil deeds. He'll be considered untrustworthy. And so the community is not going to support him. Now, note that this is a very practical thing. We're not talking about anything magical here. The book of Proverbs is concerned with practical everyday life. That's why we analyze these verses to see how they really work in the world. Sometimes people look at things that have to do with Uh, what we would call religion, and they assume that there's some magical component to it. They may not call it magic, but it's similar in that they think something will happen without clear cause and effect. In Proverbs, we're looking for what we can really see in the world. It's a very practical book. We need to see it or reason it out in a way that makes sense to us. So, back to our wicked person. It could be that in certain circumstances, he could buy his way out of a situation with his money. But that doesn't always work. Money will not solve all problems. So that's one possible application of the first half. The person will have so alienated himself from other people that no one will want to help him in a time of trouble. Now, Let's consider a situation that may also be what the verse is talking about, which is death. All the treasures of wickedness will do nothing for him when he's facing death. And we see that in real life. A very rich individual was once on his deathbed and commented, what good does the money do me now? Everybody faces death. The money, the treasures cannot save you from the inevitability of death. In fact, it might prolong the fantasy that you don't have to face death because you get caught all up in the fantasies around the physical and your treasures, and you are unwilling or unable to face the reality that you are going to die. So in the end, the treasures that an evil person accumulates will not help him in the day of his death. Now, let me add one more possible interpretation. When it says that the treasures of the wicked won't benefit him, well, what about the obvious stuff? I mean, after all, money does help in certain situations. I mean, it's nice to be able to eat out at a fine restaurant, drive an expensive car, stay at an expensive resort, not have to worry about it if you uh, if your expensive car has problems because you have enough money to just go and have somebody take care of it for you, you know, isn't that all nice stuff to have? The answer is that money may provide certain physical pleasures, but the wicked person will be in such conflict that he won't really be able to enjoy them. They won't really benefit him. The righteous person can truly enjoy a physical pleasure as long as it's not harmful to him or, and as long as it's not legally prohibited by Torah law because he's living in line with the reality. But the wicked person isn't living in line with reality. So by definition, he has to be in conflict. You can't live uh, separate from reality and not run into a conflict with reality eventually. And we see that in real life. Uh, I understand that Al Capone was walking through a city once in the evening, and he saw a house with the lights on in the living room and the drapes open, you know, much like we might see if we walked through a neighborhood at, at dusk. And as the story goes, he was amazed that people actually lived like that. Because in his world, you couldn't have the drapes open at night. Otherwise, you'd be a target for one of your enemies to shoot you. So you see how the wicked have to live? They're in constant conflict. They've got schemes and things going on and trying to, you know, put it past this person over there or undermine that person over there. And they've always got to be worrying about, is somebody, you know, coming up behind me? What about those guys? Can I trust them for this or that? It's a constant, constant conflict. So they don't live peacefully. And so even if they have material wealth, they can't really enjoy it. So that's the first half of the verse. Now, what about the second half? What about charity? How does that save from death? Well, first, the verse can't be talking about regular death. I mean, after all, everyone dies. That's very clear, we see that. And there are people who give charity. So when it says charity saves from death, it has to mean something different. When we come up with a contradiction like that, we have to look at our definitions. The verse must be talking about something other than regular death. So perhaps it's talking about a situation where the person is facing a life and death crisis and needs help from the community. And if he has given charity then perhaps the people will identify with him and step in to help him. So that could be an answer. But let's go further. What does a person gain for himself by giving charity? Again, another question opens up a whole possible arena here. By giving charity, the person identifies with others. He gains a certain viewpoint. He recognizes that he's not the only one in the universe, but that other people exist as well, and they have needs just like he does. He recognizes that there's a system here, and that he's just one tiny piece of it. And there are other people around as well who are just as important as he is. So that identification means that he'll be more empathetic with others. That means that he'll be able to see and identify with their point of view. And that means that he might recognize more clearly the true reality of a situation where others are involved. That is, you know, he's not the only player on the game board here. And thus, he might act accordingly, taking into account the fact that there are a lot of players and operate in accordance with that reality. That action and the resulting viewpoint that it represents can save him from making terrible, even fatal mistakes. Because if you're looking at things only from your standpoint, taking into account only yourself, you can very easily fail to see the effects of your actions on other people, the community, and even the entire world. So his willingness to give charity helps him recognize the view of others, and that can help him avoid serious errors that can shorten his life because a person who recognizes the viewpoints of others is more likely to see that big picture in a situation and to make decisions that recognize the impact on everyone, not just him. Martin Sheen, in an episode of the television show The West Wing, was once talking with one of his subordinates about an intricate and delicate international situation that involved multiple countries. And his counsel to his subordinate was, see the whole board. In other words, don't just look at things from your point of view. Look at everyone else that's involved in this and think about their viewpoint and what they might do. That type of thinking can help a person avoid serious mistakes in decision making. In addition, the rest of the community may very well recognize that, which could change their attitude toward him. Because when people see that someone thinks in terms of the entire community, not just themselves, that can change their view of that individual to be very positive, and they may thus be quite inclined to help that person in a time of calamity. Now, contrast that with a wicked person. The treasures of wickedness will not help the wicked person make better decisions. In fact, the sheer fact that he got his treasure through wicked means will strengthen him to make decisions in that way. And since he's not operating in the world of reality, that can lead him to incorrect decisions, which will ultimately bring about consequences and his demise. Because it's very likely he will end up in a situation where he's making a mistake that will be his undoing. Now, let's slightly digress. How does a person protect himself at all? The only way that King Solomon holds that a person can protect himself is through knowledge. You have to understand the world and human nature and how these operate. Maimonides, the Rambam, holds that there are three kinds of harm. First one is natural disasters, like a volcano exploding. Number two, you're harmed by other people. And three, you cause yourself harm. And the Rambam says that the first one, natural disasters, they're rare. The second, that you're harmed by other people, that's more frequent. Number three, that you cause yourself harm. He says the most harm is caused that way because people lack knowledge. Once you have knowledge, the ideas can start to help you become more objective. The less knowledge you have, the more ignorant you are, and the more you tend to make decisions based on your emotions. Sometimes there are certain emotions that can make you ignorant at a given moment. For example, uh, anger may make you forget the consequences of your actions. We see this in road rage. You know, the emotions make a person ignorant, and they make decisions based on how they feel, and that can cause them to make mistakes in life. I recall hearing of a man who was sentenced over 20 years in prison for killing another man in a case of road rage. Can you imagine how many times over those 20-plus years he wished he had made a different decision in that moment? Now, there are two types of emotions here to think about. One is the kind that comes up once in a while, like you have an angry flare-up. And the other is where the emotion is constant, like where you're a constantly angry person or you're a greedy person or something like that. And we need to work on both of these, the ones that are embedded and are continuous in us and the ones that can flare up suddenly. Now, when it comes to kindness and charity, Different groups have looked at this differently. At least one culture apparently said that you shouldn't give to poor people because God made them poor. Uh, others have said, oh, you shouldn't give to them because they might not work for themselves if you, uh, if you give to them. Some people I understand went to the Hofetzheim, a great Torah scholar and one who became known for his dedication to and his written works about proper speech. And they asked him about this. And I understand he said that certain people need charity because of their personality. For our purposes here, what's he saying? There are many things for us to complete in the world. There's bread to bake, airplanes to build, all kinds of things like that. God gave the world over to man to complete. And the same thing is true within our social system. Now, if someone is wounded or has a broken leg or a foot, we might act like a crutch and help that person hobble to a hospital emergency room. Their physical situation is such that they need our help. The same thing can be true of personalities. A person may have a personality that requires help, and it may be our responsibility to act like a crutch and help them. A poor person may have a personality like that, and you have to help him or her. This responsibility recognizes that there's a system here. Most people recognize that rationally they have to keep justice, that there needs to be a justice system uh, within the society. But they may not be as clear about this with regard to charity or kindness. Now, there are two ways to relate to a system. One is, I use it, but I'm not part of it. The second is, I recognize that I'm part of the system. And if I'm operating in accordance with the second of those, that is, I recognize that I'm part of the system, and I see a situation in the system that requires help, then I realize that I have an obligation to deal with it. When you feel that you are totally part of the system, then you can reach total objectivity. If I feel like I'm outside the system then there's a part of me that's still focused on myself. You know, I got my thing going here. Yeah, there's society over there and all the other people, but, you know, I'm, I'm kind of different and special. But when I realize that I'm part of the system, then there's no self. I just recognize that I'm one person of the six billion or so on the planet and one of even many more billions who have existed throughout history and into the future. This is what we mean by humility. We recognize our real place in the system. And as part of that system, I'm obligated to deal with issues that I see in the system. What makes us subjective is an involvement with the self. We can only become objective when we're not involved with the self. So now let's circle back to our verse. Whenever Proverbs wants to use the highest form of great consequences it uses death. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to die per se, but that you'll have very great consequences because you're not making objective decisions. You're making subjective decisions. So giving charity helps you to move away from the self and become totally objective because you're doing something that's for the system. By contrast, the more evil that a person does, the more subjective they become, and the more they'll suffer the consequences of that. So the point that he's bringing out in the verse is that if you give charity, it helps you become more objective. It helps you become more humble. It moves you away from the self, and it helps you avoid all the mistaken decisions that could otherwise result. But the wicked, the more they're involved in the self, the more mistakes they'll make, And the greater consequences they'll experience. Charity also helps inculcate in you the idea that the physical world is not important. It represents the idea that money isn't important, but wisdom is important. If you become attached to the physical, that is your primary focus is on the physical world, then you'll make mistakes and you'll not be able to benefit from the wealth. And the details of this show up in verse after verse in the continued study of Proverbs. The ultimate success is someone who recognizes that the only real success in the physical world is through wisdom. Wisdom becomes the essence of a person's life rather than the physical. Giving charity is the act of a personality that is not attached to the physical world and is attached to wisdom. So how does it save you from death? As we pointed out earlier, everybody dies. But we look at death in two ways. If you live out your life according to your genes, then death isn't a punishment. Death as a punishment means that your life is shortened. The more tension and conflict, the more your life can get shortened. Just look at the pictures of uh, presidents when they're first elected, uh, and then look at them when they have one or two terms in office. There is a price that is paid for the tension and the conflict that goes with that job. So wisdom is the tool for knowing how to deal with the physical world. The ultimate consequence to a person is to have their life shortened. And thus charity helps to save you from this because it helps you to put the physical world in its proper place and you begin to see that wisdom is what is truly important rather than the physical. The only way to reach God is through wisdom and the only way to happiness and success is through wisdom and that's what the various cases in Proverbs show. The whole book of Proverbs is to show that the life of ignorance is a failure and the life of the righteous leads to success. From all different angles possible, it shows you that the life of the wicked is nothing to be jealous of. By definition, it has to lead to failure, but the life of the righteous, if that person lives the life of Proverbs, leads to success. That's our time for this segment. Thanks for joining me on the Noah Hyde Nation's radio show. Hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you can join us next time. In the meantime, make today a great day.